Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm best-selling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View. I'm so excited. I know that you might have listened to a show already this year, but Sarah, it's our first time in 2020 being back. I cannot thank you and our listeners enough for giving us a break over the holidays. Was it as restorative and wonderful for you as it was for me? Uh, I like I ended up. It wasn't like I took like a real break. Uh, We actually went winter camping between Christmas and New Year's uh, where, you know, no, we, we were the only tent in the whole campground, but we were fine. We made it. We stayed warm. Um, and so being able to like completely unplug, right? Phones don't work in these state parks. That's why I go there. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm, you know, we're getting back into routine. Kids are back at school and, I just have so much more focus. Like I'm really noticing I really needed the the brain break that was, you know, I've been working really hard this fall to um, address how um, overextended I was in just about every aspect of my life. And that was starting to really hurt my own physical and mental health. And it was the mental health symptoms that were like the really scary big warning, be better, better be proactive now, or this doesn't go anywhere good for me. And, um, and it just kind of feels like, yeah, now, like I, I just, I feel not that I'm, you know, all the way recovered from how much I ran myself into the ground in the early part of the fall. But, um, but I, I'm starting to feel, I don't know that, um, joy, joy, I love nerding out so much, Stacy, and it's well, really wonderful to to get back into it and just be like, ah, new information, and I can be all riled up about this new information, and then I can share it on a podcast, and then I can write a blog post about it, and then oh, it's just it just makes me it just makes me happy in my heart. All right, before we nerd out too hard, I have some news and updates from my break as well, and I did share on social media over the break. So um, I feel like I need to update our listeners as well from our last show. So I talked about a change that was coming in our family that we weren't quite ready to discuss. It's because I wanted to tell my family face to face over the holidays, but Matt and I are training to be foster parents. And we will finish our training in the end of January. And we hope to welcome our home to whomever might need it um, for maybe three months, maybe up to six months from now, depending on, you know, what is needed when. And that is the reason that we are not moving to Florida. I know a lot of people were really curious, like, what's going on? Why did you change your mind? Um, We decided that we were going to stay in Virginia where we have a good support system and um, that 
means the foster system is by state. So we will perhaps be moving out of our home, but we will be staying in Virginia. And before you jump in, Sarah, I do want to add one more thing, which is that Matt officially started his first day as a mailman with the United States Postal Service yesterday. So we've had a lot of change going on in our family, which we knew was coming. And we were working on so 2019, as I said, on the last episode was kind of our year of reevaluation and change. And then this year is our year of like, rainbow and gratitude and following our hearts and all of that stuff. And so I know it was veiled and cryptic and weird. And I said it was all good stuff. So there it is. It's out there. (laughs) Holy. I just feel like we need to talk about all of this stuff for an hour (laughs) instead of our topic. No, we've got a big topic to jump into. But um, like I said, I I wanted to update our listeners. Exciting, positive. Wait, I want Matt to be my mailman. No (laughs) way. He can't be. I, I I love my mailman, Mike. So That's he's right. essentially like a substitute teacher mailman, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, he trains to be a mailman like everybody else, but then he will be, um, you know, like the like filling in for people yeah. that go on vacation or um, get sick or whatever it is. And he will not be in your city and he will not be in our city either. I'm not going to say what city he's going to be in, but he will, um, obviously in the Northern Virginia area because it has to be local for us. And um, he's super excited. Anybody who knows my husband knows he doesn't really like people. He loves podcasts. He loves helping people. He just doesn't like social interaction with them. Um, And the fresh air and sunlight of being outdoors, the way that a postman will be, will be very good for him health-wise. mental and physical. So we've talked a lot about why that makes sense here on the show. Hopefully all these puzzle pieces will come together for you as to why Matt would want to help people, but not necessarily talk a lot to them. (laughs) So um, Anyway, I'm excited. And of course, we'll be talking more about it as um, things progress. But I think the most important thing I I do want to say, and um, we did a very in-depth blog post about why we chose to be foster parents and what we will and won't be talking about going forward. And honestly, the most important thing is the privacy and respect of the children who might come to our home. We will not be sharing anything about them, no photos, no nothing. Um, and I think that our listeners can understand why that's important. And Mm -hmm. I appreciate everyone's respect of that privacy because it's not ours to give. Yeah. I think we can all understand the need for privacy and I'm super excited for all of the, like, just, I, I really think really positive change that you're, jumping like headfirst into that's like i'm super excited um so do you want to talk about this for an hour or do you want to talk no no about no this? we have a topic that i actually requested, <laughs> requested and i know you did one. a ton of research on mm-hmm. um and i i have some personal experience with intermittent fasting which is what we're going to talk about today and I come at it from the perspective of someone who doesn't have a gallbladder so my experience is not necessarily the same as everybody's because we've talked about how uh, that doesn't work for me (laughs) but um, I know that you know it's hot right now the way that keto is hot or you know whatever and um, I we got some requests to talk about this topic. And then um, I know you and I have talked about it previously, but 
there's got to be updated science um, since what we've been doing this 10 years. So I thought it would be good to, order of magnitude. to jump back into it now at the New Year's. If this is something people are considering, we can guide them to um, what the science says. Yeah, actually, I um, I think as I told you before we started recording, this was a very meaty subject for me to dive into the research and and prepare for this podcast. And I actually ended up writing a new blog post as I was preparing. So um, we'll make sure that there's a um, link to the new blog post because it'll have all the scientific citations and everything in the show notes. Um, but I was actually, um, it was, there's been so much research just in the last two years that answers a lot of questions that needed to be answered to really understand whether or not the hype around intermittent fasting is warranted. And I I think it's kind of important to start this topic off with a little bit of like history. Like how did this get to be a thing? And it really came from um, there are some uh, blue zones, which are uh, little pockets, cultural pockets in the world where there's a higher percentage of uh, centenarians, right? So a higher percentage of people who live to be over 100 um, with full health their entire lives. And there's there's been a lot of study of, you know, what are these people doing right? And it, it really boils down to all of the things that we talk about on this podcast. They eat uh, whole food, nutrient-dense diets. They don't overeat. Um, they all have, all of these cultures have a lot of movement built into their days. Um, so for example, the Okinawans don't have furniture. So even, um, as people are aging, they're getting up and down off the floor 14 to 20 times a day, which is maintaining muscle mass and it's, you know, changing lymphatic flow and all of the things that movement is really important for. They all have, um, they all tend to live in sync with the sun, so they're all getting enough sleep, and they all have really, really strong social connections. So there's some kind of um, little effect of everything that they're doing that is leading to these little pockets of populations, better health, and intermittent fasting came from rodent studies. And it, you know, this was sort of done in the 90s and early 2000s, and it was really exciting. So Rodents on intermittent fasting, they uh, either lose body fat or total body weight. Um, and this even seen on when they're fed high-fat diets. They have improved insulin sensitivity, reduced fasting glucose and insulin. Their blood pressure normalizes, their lipid profiles normalize, and they have lower um, levels of inflammation and oxidative stress. And those are all, like, great things. Um, and so... That combined with, I think, the the um, the non-quality controlled aspect of the internet where um, an anecdote can take on more weight than it ever would in the context of the scientific community, right? So uh, somebody says, I intermittent fasted, I lost 300 pounds, look at my abs, everyone should do this, right? And so that type of magnification along with this little bit of science that in rodents is really compelling has allowed intermittent fasting to become a 
pretty popular, I don't know if I want to call it a, a diet itself, like dietary strategy. And what's interesting is research I mean, is really only catching up over the last decade. There's been only about a dozen human studies um, ever, like well-controlled, ever done in intermittent fasting. And the the first few studies, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as they started, um, using a randomized crossover design. So that's where you take the same group of people, you randomly assume, assign them into the fast intermittent fasting group and a control group, and then they switch. And that way you can tell, right. Is it because this came first and this came second or not? And you can really dial in on the, like what the effect is as soon as studies were done that way. Um, it, it started to show that intermittent fasting, it does, you know, one of the goals here is that by restricting your feeding window, or you can do what's called alternate day, um, fasting, which is a form of intermittent fasting. There's two main forms, alternate day fasting. You eat one day, you don't eat the next day and intermittent fasting where you have, um, a shorter window of time in which you have to get in all your calories. It's also called a time restricted feeding window. So, um, the time-restricted feeding window is definitely the most popular. If you're just looking up intermittent fasting on the internet, that's what you'll see most sort of influencers promoting. Um, and they'll just say like, just don't eat till noon, right? They'll say, skip, you know, skip breakfast and like stick a pin in that because that's where the science is, is really problematic, uh, for supporting intermittent fasting. But, um, What's interesting is that the initial studies that did this show, you know, on average, even if you overeat on one day, if you don't eat the next day, your average calories over those two days is going to be lower. And um, most people find this harder than caloric restriction. At least that's what's reported in the couple of studies that have compared some form of intermittent fasting against straight caloric restriction. Um, and people tend to lose less weight with intermittent fasting than caloric restriction, at least with the eating in the evening kind of intermittent fasting. Um, however, uh, these days diet culture is all about extremes. And there is a group of people who the more extreme the diet is, the easier it is to do. It almost feels easier to do because it's more extreme and harder. Like it's, it's more of a break from the normal routine. It's sort of like the equivalent of quitting smoking by going cold Turkey. Um, or it's as close to that as you can get with diet, because if you stop food, cold Turkey, bad things happen like starving to death. So the studies have really shown that yes, you can, you can lose weight, but no better or worse than any other weight loss diet. And, um, and that all of the benefits, the basically, you know, their benefits to metabolic parameters. So really that's glucose regulation and insulin sensitivity and benefits to cardiovascular disease risk factors, which is lipid profiles. So cholesterol, triglycerides, um, and blood pressure, that all of those benefits can be completely attributed to the fact that those people lost weight. And it's basically all of those things tend to improve when we're losing weight, right? Because they're directly, those systems are like, that is the system that is regulating our insulin sensitivity and our um, cardiovascular risk factors. So 
that was sort of the state of the research up until a couple of years ago. And then there was a really important study done in 2017, which we talked about recently on our podcast about eating breakfasts, where they looked at intermittent fasting with a time-restricted window, a feeding window, and they looked at what's called an early time-restricted feeding window. So those people skipped dinner. So they had, they ate for, I think it was like six hours. So they ate from like 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. versus shifting that window so those people were skipping breakfast. So they were basically eating lunch and dinner. And they compared that to three meals a day with everything controlled. Caloric intake was controlled. Uh, macros were controlled. Supervised feeding, right? All of the things that you look for for really, really well-designed a clinical trial. And what was fascinating about this study was that they showed that there was a very small increase in energy expenditure in both of the fasting groups. They showed that there was a slight increase in fat oxidation, which would be beneficial for weight loss in the um, breakfast skipping group. Um, but they showed that skipping breakfast came at the cost of increased inflammation um, and uh, there's this is in addition to a bunch of other studies that have looked at uh, breakfast skipping as a lifestyle habit that is a very good way of sort of studying intermittent fasting because that that's what it is it's just called I never bother to eat breakfast and as we talked about in our podcast about <laughs> breakfast being the most important meal of the day, um, there's a bunch of studies showing that regularly skipping breakfast increases cholesterol, uh, increases um, insulin resistance, like 54% increase in insulin resistance, which is a huge effect. And that there's even been some large meta-analyses just published in the last few months that have shown that if you regularly uh, skip breakfast, you're at much higher risk of developing diabetes, type 2 diabetes specifically, and at much higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And it's... Can I ask a question before we moved on to cardiovascular yeah. and some of the other than skipping breakfast, the, the dinner stuff I think is interesting. But before we do that, I think there's such a disconnect because everything that I've known or heard about from intermittent fasting and what we you talked about at the top of the show, the uh, buzz of IF being uh, improving insulin sensitivity seems incongruous to the result of um, not skip or of skipping breakfast and having this intermittent fast of not um, doing it in the morning. And that result, I, I wonder, like, I know when I originally heard about it, it was on a a paleo podcast years and years ago, and they talked about kind of cellular regeneration and turnover. And then the other thing uh, of benefit mm -hmm. was um, insulin. And therefore, it was like recommended for lifters mm -hmm. to use this because you could metabolize at the right windows of time, blah, 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 right? I'm not going to get into all of that and make this overly complicated. But um, I guess I, I'm just being the voice of what? <laughs> like, how could the selling feature of intermittent fasting be? Right. Yeah. The human studies show the opposite of the rodent studies. So um, here's some interesting things that have come out of the rodent studies. So one of the things that's come out of it is that it's really important for the feeding window to be aligned with circadian rhythms. And so that was... Um, 
that was discovered a number of years ago, that um, if you make the feeding window, so rodents are naturally nocturnal, they would naturally eat at night. And if you make their feeding window during the day, um, any benefit to intermittent fasting goes away. Um, and if you make their feeding window at night, they can actually have, for example, they can eat a, a high-fat Western-style diet and not develop obesity or diabetes. And it really has to do with um, synchronicity between the feeding window and the light-dark cycle. Like when when that animal would normally be um, – hormonally aligned with eating. So that's one of the really interesting things that came out of the animal studies that is going to feed into uh, where intermittent fasting may be beneficial. Um, one of the other, I think, one of the things that you mentioned was autophagy. And I really want to make sure that we emphasize that from this standpoint. So one of the things that intermittent fasting does in rodents is stimulate autophagy. It's like a spring cleanup of your cells. So cells basically go, ah, I don't have energy. Oh, you know what? I got all of these useless, broken down organelles lying around. I'm going to cannibalize those and use those for energy. And then I'm going to make new organelles. And what it does is it basically um, is like the spring cleanup in cells is sort of how it's like traditionally referred to, and it makes the cell more efficient. It has these other side benefits like um, uh, sort of uh, underlying viral infections that might have gone unnoticed by the cell can be discovered this way and can be actually, um, those viruses can be destroyed through autophagy. There's really great, like legit great benefits to autophagy. Um, autophagy is also stimulated by exercise and while we sleep. So getting enough sleep and living an active lifestyle stimulates autophagy. I think there's this idea that the only way to get autophagy is with like keto and intermittent fasting. And you sort of hear this term being like thrown around only in relation to these, I think we'll call them fad diet approaches. And, um, it's very, um, unclear how much autophagy is actually being stimulated in humans. I found one study that showed with early uh, time-restricted feeding, which means skipping dinner instead of skipping breakfast, that there is a little bit of autophagy um, increase as measured through genetic expression. Um, but the magnitude of effect in humans seems to be fairly different than the magnitude of effect in animals. And this is where I think... You know, people who listen to our podcast regularly know that I put a lot of value into mechanistic rodent studies. I see those as being really, really important data to pay attention to. So a mechanistic rodent study is where uh, you're using that animal model to understand the mechanisms behind an effect that co-occurs in humans. It's already been established to co-occur in humans. So this thing happens in humans and in rodents. We're going to use the rodent model to understand how it's happening, why it's happening. Intervention studies are a different thing. An intervention study is where you uh, make a bunch of rodents sick and give them a drug and then measure how much better they get. And it is much harder to draw a straight line between an intervention study in rodents and an intervention study 
in humans. So where the intermittent fasting studies in rodents are really interesting is where they show that it stimulates autophagy. Um, there's been some really interesting studies showing that there's a gut microbiome piece to this. And our microbiomes actually have a um, circadian rhythm. So there's species that actually cycle throughout the day. And it's sort of like after feeding, they go up. And then between feeding, they go down. And there's other ones that do the opposite. So after feeding, they go down. And between feeding, right, an overnight fast, for example, they go up. And that's a normal cycle in our gut microbiomes. And um, when you feed rodents, all of these microbiome um, studies with intermittent fasting have been done in rodents so far. When you feed rodents a high-fat diet, they lose the cyclic nature of most of those species in their gut microbiomes. And then when you give them that same high-fat diet that makes them lose the circadian rhythm of their microbiomes, but you put them on intermittent fasting schedules, so they're only eating at night, which is when they're normally eat, then a lot of that cyclic nature of their microbiomes is restored. So there's some really interesting mechanisms revealed uh, showing that intermittent fasting could potentially have cardiometabolic benefits above and beyond just like healthy food choices. However, the magnitude of effect is the thing that you can't draw the straight line. So you can't say just because it's a big effect in rodents, it's going to be a big effect in humans. And there's this piece of it, of the circadian rhythm, which has just been ignored until the last two years in, in the science, um, and certainly ignored by uh, proponents of intermittent fasting. Because what ha- this 2017 paper did, comparing breakfast skipping to dinner skipping, was it revealed that these negative effects of breakfast skipping don't apply to dinner skipping. So breakfast skipping was uh, created... Um, higher insulin resistance uh, for lunch, like later. (laughs) Um, So skipping breakfast meant you were more insulin resistant by the time you actually ate, and it was inflammatory. Um, And there's other papers showing that it also creates um, problematic lipid profiles, right, increasing cardiovascular disease risk as well. But dinner skipping didn't have that negative trade-off for the very, very small increase in energy expenditure. And so there's actually been two clinical trials done since that one that have also looked at this idea of intermittent fasting, but where you eat breakfast. So you get out of bed and you eat breakfast, you um, basically get all of your food into a six or eight hour feeding window, but starting first thing in the morning. So instead of getting up and just having your you know, black coffee, or if you, you know, buttered coffee is, it's a very weak argument that that wouldn't break a fast. Um, and instead of like pushing and pushing until lunchtime and then starting your feeding window, shifting your feeding window early. And that's where the human studies are actually really interesting because instead of showing any benefit is just due to weight loss. So you might as well, you know, do a caloric, you know, find a energy deficit that is easier to maintain over the long term for sustainable healthy weight loss. Um, instead of showing that as the one and only result, they've actually have shown some cardiometabolic benefits above and beyond any particular change in diet or, um, weight loss. So a, um, 
really great study that was actually, it was, there were two papers published out of it, um, showed what they actually did was they controlled everything in order to have no weight loss occur. So they controlled caloric intake, they controlled macros, it was supervised feeding, um, it was a five-week-long study, and they compared early time-restricted feeding, so skipping dinner, to a 12-hour feeding window, which is a, a little bit closer to normal. I think a lot of people actually gravitate towards more like a 14-hour feeding window, so a lot of people will eat after dinner before they go to bed, um, but this was you know, as, as controlled as it could possibly be. And they showed that there was an improvement to insulin levels. They did a glucose challenge test afterwards and showed that, uh, the people who had been following the early time restricted feeding had, um, higher levels of insulin sensitivity, their uh, beta cells in their pancreas were healthier, they had reduced blood pressure, they were, had reduced levels of oxidative stress, and they also really interestingly measured leptin and ghrelin, which are hormones that regulate hunger, and found that both were lower, which um, corresponded to decreased appetite. So they actually, um, those authors of that study actually drew the conclusion that the benefits of this this early time-restricted feeding where you're doing intermittent fasting but you're eating breakfast pretty soon after getting up in the morning, that that has some independent um, cardiometabolic benefits, but that the major benefits actually come from that appetite regulation um, because they just found that people got full, easier... Um, they weren't starving, which was really interesting because I think it's also a much less intuitive eating pattern. I think when people say, oh, yeah, just intermittent fast and you already don't want to eat breakfast, which is a sign of unregulated chronic stress, um, it's like this easy excuse to like not eat breakfast. Meanwhile, um, as we talked about in a previous podcast, eating breakfast um, actually improves <laughs> insulin sensitivity, improves cardiovascular disease risk factors. And it's a really interesting, well, like, look, here's here's where we can start to take that rodent data and apply it to humans. We were just doing it wrong at first. Um, we need to sync with our circadian rhythms. And to do that in humans, we need to be eating earlier in the day, not late into the evening, because we're diurnal, not nocturnal. So this 2019 study, it was just published a couple months ago, um, did, you know, same sort of crossover design, randomized, you know, super controlled. And uh, interestingly, this study uh, conflicted with the 2018 one and showed no particular benefit to energy expenditure, um, even though there have been a couple of studies. So that's still something that is, there's not enough data to be super conclusive on. There may be a small improvement to energy expenditure. Um, and it might just be that the, the effect was too small to tease out statistical significance in this particular trial. But they did, this is the study that looked at um, an autophagy gene. They looked at an aging gene. They looked at brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is really important for central nervous system health. They looked at mTOR. And overall, they showed 
metabolic benefit of this early time-restricted feeding. Here's a huge caveat from this study, is that they also showed that this feeding pattern elevated morning cortisol and lowered evening cortisol, which may or may not be desirable depending on what your cortisol is doing now. So it's very much a, you know, but there's been a lot of talk for a long time that intermittent fasting is not appropriate for people with unmanaged chronic stress. And this is the data um, that would support that statement. So um, that's a really interesting extra find. And there's, there's not many other studies, no other studies that I know of in humans that have actually measured cortisol in the morning and evening on uh, a kind of intermittent fast. So, um, so that's, that's a really interesting caveat. But there is now like these three recent studies that were very well controlled, very well designed, you know, crossover study design that show that intermittent fasting with an early feeding window may have some benefits above and beyond, um, you know, a healthy diet. And, um, and that supports what we found in rodents. So there is this, okay, there's some interesting data here showing that intermittent fasting may be beneficial in humans provided your feeding window is early. But I think it's really important to emphasize what the magnitude of effect is because that is what puts the effort that goes into intermittent fasting in context with all of the other healthy choices that we know to be making. So, for example, that 2018 five-week-long study showed uh, fasting insulin decreased by 14.5%. It was statistically significant. The p-value was 0.05. And they, um, the HOMA index, which is like an overall measure of insulin sensitivity, though, it has statistical trend towards a decrease, but it was not actually statistically significant. So, it's a small effect. And to put that into like, what does 14.5% reduced fasting insulin mean? We've talked about the importance of lifestyle on insulin sensitivity on the show before. I have an entire blog post just about how lifestyle impacts insulin because we get very fixated on dietary strategies for insulin regulation. And actually our insulin is more sensitive to lifestyle than it is to diet. And um, there was there's studies showing that not getting enough sleep on, say, weeknights, say get five or six hours sleep Monday through Friday, will decrease insulin sensitivity by f- between 15 and 30%. Um, there was even one study showing that just one night of partial sleep um, caused a 25% decrease in insulin sensitivity. So 15 weeks, or sorry, five weeks of um this early time-restricted feeding intermittent fasting had about half of the effect of just getting enough sleep. And so I think that's a, a really important, it's important to understand the magnitude of effect given the amount of effort intermittent fasting is for most people. It's not, especially skipping dinner versus skipping breakfast is not a natural pattern that aligns with our societal structure for most people. In that 2017 paper that showed that skipping dinner created a slight um, increase in energy expenditure. Um, And that was the, remember, that's not data that's been seen in every single study. They showed that those people burned about 91 extra calories 
throughout the entire 24-hour period. So um, 91 extra calories is about what you could burn with about just under 14 minutes of walking. So I would argue that um, intermittent fasting is only something to play with once you've done the work of the things like making sure you get enough sleep and sleep on a consistent schedule, that you're living an active lifestyle, that you're managing stress, because those things don't just improve cardiovascular disease risk factors or insulin sensitivity, right? They're improving uh, mental health, neurotransmitter regulation, immune system function. They're all inputs into the gut microbiome and gut health. Like we know that there's really diverse benefits of dialing in lifestyle. So when you start to look at these human studies and the magnitude of effect of intermittent fasting, it starts to become something that is certainly not compelling as a first-line strategy. Um, there's some interesting data with that early time-restricted feeding window. You know, I would, um, op- I would support anyone in my life who wanted to experiment with that if they're getting enough sleep and they're active and they've managed stress and they're eating a nutrient-dense, healthy diet and they've done that work first. I think that makes a lot of sense with my logical thoughts on it, right? If we set aside the science, to me, I think if we look back at history and human development, we wouldn't have had exact meals at exact times throughout history, but we also wouldn't have been like regularly not avoiding or avoiding a certain meal at a certain time. So I think in natural fluctuations of appetite or busyness or, you know, whatever the case may be, people might not have a meal. And I think like the Mm -hmm. whole idea of it being dinner makes a lot of sense to me as well, because I think you're uh, less likely to overeat um, breakfast than dinner slash dessert. Do you know what I, and I feel like that's, so I know a lot of people who um, find benefits from, as, as you discussed, autophagy or cellular regeneration or muscle building, like all of that being lumped into one um, with timing it, understanding the full biology of their body that really do have those things dialed in, sleep, nutrition, fitness, and they're using it to maximize um, muscle building and performance. And I think that's entirely different than looking at someone who has a high amount of inflammation and difficult digestion and is seeking um, a way to resolve that and might be introducing something that could potentially be more harm than help. And I think this idea, as complex as all of these studies and everything is, to me, is pretty simple and um, easy for me to understand from the perspective of if you have those things, you need to be focused on fixing those things, right? Like we know that there are certain things that we can do to reduce inflammation. We've talked about that so many times in the show. Um, and you know, I point you to a lot of them, nutrient density, removing inflammatory foods, getting sleep, getting sunlight, getting gentle movement. Um, those are the things that we know are great for that. And we don't jump into immediately skipping a meal because while that might have tangential benefits to some of the things like we've talked about, the primary uh, benefit of that is not reducing inflammation, right? Like in none of in none of these things, even the proponents of intermittent fasting is the number one thing in their list suggesting that it's going to re- to 
you know, reduce your inflammation. Um, so I think, you know, considering that inflammation is a stressor, um, what can we do to reduce the the stress on us? Overeating is certainly a potential stressor. So mm-hmm. if if you find yourself feeling like two nights a week, you're not, you're just not that hungry. I mean, I know for me personally, if I have a large lunch later in the day when the rest of the family is eating dinner, I might not. I might only have the salad that they're serving or I might just be like, oh, I'm not hungry right now and we'll see what happens later. You know, and, and I, I feel like if you're in tune with your body, that makes sense. And that's also the only way that it could potentially work for me because of my gallbladder when I tried to intermittent fast with low carb paleo uh, almost 10 years now. Um, the result was disastrous in terms of digestion because then trying to eat a meal, not just after sleep, but then also an additional like four to six hours, I was trying to fast in the mornings. It, no matter what I ate in the morning, it was not being digested well. So I think it's, you know, in addition to the things that you were talking about, like dialing in sleep and nutrient density and exercise, I would add to that really paying attention to your digestion because um, I would argue that there are people who are ignoring the digestive signs in lieu of wanting something to work or, or telling themselves like, well, I'm losing weight and therefore it's fine. And I know that because that was me. And so I would just suggest to anybody who is either thinking about this um, to prioritize, you know, documenting how you feel and how you're digesting the food, like have a little food journal as to, you know, when you ate what. Don't get too detailed and overwhelmed if you have disordered eating, for example. Like for me, journaling food can sometimes be a trigger because then I feel like I need to fake it or you know what I mean like whatever but I say that for the point of being able to track your digest your digestion and paying yeah. attention to that so that um, you know the result of what you're doing because you might not feel um, a lack of nutrient absorption in that moment but long term like what happened to me you know six months a year 18 months later your hair is falling out your thyroid's going crazy you know you're you're trying to figure out what went wrong and what went wrong was not only were you not eating during that period and putting your body into a starving cycle. But then on top of that, it wasn't absorbing what you were giving it. And then then you have a whole bunch of other health problems that you have to tackle. And there are better ways, in my opinion, to lose weight if that's what you're trying to tackle. Um, and you have digestive and inflammation factors. And I, I think like, if you don't have those, and you are focused on, you know, building muscle and really dialing it in and getting as healthy as you can be. And you've, you've got everything else handled. Like I can see how this could be something to play with, to see how it makes you feel and, and how, you know, your body responds to it and do the testing. It's easy to test your, um, blood glucose and stuff now. Like you can test that yourself. Um, but if you don't have those other things dialed in, I feel like this just introduces, more problems than fixes for my personal uh, experience. I mean, from the science, hundred percent agree. Um, I, uh, not to be like super self promoting but I'm going to promote one of my own products on the podcast right now. I know it's pretty crazy. I, um, have an online course that is, 
available all the time. It's not like the AIP lecture series where it's session only and you can only, you know, sign up. I mean, for 2020, just I'm just doing one session this year. Um, but I have a course that is the Healthy Weight Loss course, and it is a few hours of video. Um, and I go through a lot of the research on uh, weight loss versus weight loss maintenance because those are two very different things. And so the idea is that you want to lose weight in a in a way that is going to maintain your basal metabolic rate and not completely, you know, make your hunger hormones go completely bonkers so that it is easy to maintain. Because one of the things with weight loss that becomes so challenging, especially with very extreme dietary approaches, is a lot of these extreme diets uh, lower your basal metabolic rates. You need to achieve a greater and greater caloric deficit in order to continue losing weight while your hunger hormones, basically your ghrelin goes through the roof, so your appetite increases. And it's basically a recipe for failure. And so one of the things I've done in this online course, um, which we can, again, put a, a link in the show notes for people to go check out and see if it would be a good resource for them, is go through that research and all of the research on how to lose weight in such a way that uh, maintains basal, basal metabolic rate um, and helps to regulate hormones and so that it's not just sustainable, but maintainable on the other side. Um, and the idea is to, you know, get healthier while losing weight rather than lose weight at the expense of things like insulin sensitivity and, uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors. And so I think that, you know, given that, right, there's two main reasons that people, gravitate towards intermittent fasting. There's the performance piece, which there's not very much science looking at that, but the little bit that has been done has shown that there is some um, uh, catabolic, no, sorry, other way, anabolic effects of intermittent fasting in athletes. It's kind of a, it's a whole sort of different question. And then there's these studies that we've talked about where they're trying to evaluate the effect on metabolism, insulin, cardiovascular disease risk factors, because it's in the context of people who are using intermittent fasting as a weight loss strategy. And that, I think, is far more common. So if you fall into that latter category and you have been either considering intermittent fasting as a weight loss strategy, maybe for a 2020 diet uh, resolution, um, or you've done it in the past and you, you, you're kind of at that, you know, uh, I've done all these different things and now I'm broken, right? We, we talked about yo-yo dieting on the podcast on a previous episode that we can also link to in the show notes. Um, if you fall into those categories, I, I think that, uh, my healthy weight loss course will have a lot of really valuable information for you. Awesome. I personally think getting some sleep and taking a probiotic <laughs> to help my, uh, my gut health are like just as powerful when it comes to um, controlling the hormones that are associated with appetite and um, all of that kind of stuff that we talked about. So just from personal experience, just get some sleep and take a probiotic. Everything will be fine. <laughs> It's not actually, I'm not a doctor that's not going to solve your problems. Um, it, it may help, though. Yeah, 
I can tell you from personal experience, it makes a difference. Um, and for autophagy, we've talked about red light therapy as well. So I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, it, there's, I mean, again, getting enough sleep and moving your body some way stimulates autophagy. You don't need to do these extreme weirdo diets in order to get the benefits of autophagy. Sarah, thank you so much for all of the science on this topic. I know it's going to be a hot one. And I just want to reiterate to everyone that what really benefits you and your body is going to be different than what benefits somebody else. And to think about what it is you're trying to achieve and making sure that you're listening to your body really intentionally and thoroughly as you go about trying to improve that. It looks different for any, everybody, but the science is pretty conclusive on a couple of things. I was actually joking with Matt the other day that our podcast should be called Just Eat Some Vegetables. Um, and that was <laughs> that was a joke on the word should before I hear from people that I said it. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, we, we talk a lot about the things that we know to be good for you on this show. And it's not a surprise to me that you could get equal to or better than results from focusing on sleep and activity and all the things that we recommend here on this show. And I think universally you hear health uh, practitioners and um, gurus advise on those things being good for you. Shocking. So um, hopefully this was helpful from from that perspective. And um, we wish all of you embarking upon whatever healthy habits you're trying to do this new year success. And just remember that taking small steps towards health in sustainable, long-term, achievable ways is the way to help yourself. And then you know, jumping in, doing 50 things all at once and expecting the world to be completely different the next day is is often a way to um, set yourself up for failure instead of success, which we don't want for you. We want you to be healthy and happy, happy long term. So thank you, Sarah, for helping do the research so that people can make informed decisions on living their best life. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.